break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 23rd of May. 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show. Got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about some bellicosity coming from President Joe Biden on the issue of Taiwan. We're going to be talking about Australia's election, which took place over the weekend, already being dubbed the so-called climate election. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with the $54 billion in aid that's been sent to Ukraine and what that could have bought here in the United States. Many people have been noting the sharp differences between the seemingly never-ending bipartisan willingness to send large sums of money to Ukraine and the total inability to spend money on things that actually help working-class people here in the United States. The tally of aid to Ukraine now stands at roughly $54 billion, and it really does not seem that there is much end in sight. Everyone from the 11 Senate Republicans who voted last week against more aid for Ukraine to the socialist and communist movement here in the United States to the New York Times editorial board are all questioning the reality at play here and calling for some level of restraint or an outright end to the largesse being lavished on Ukraine. However, the military-industrial congressional think tank complex that lies behind America's imperial commitment to controlling the globe, is continuing to push unlimited aid at full tilt, no matter the consequences. In fact, Senator Mitt Romney stated in an op-ed today that the United States should prepare for nuclear war. The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, MSNBC, and CNN continue to cheerlead for more and more war at whatever the cost to the U.S. and the globe, even at the risk of a direct conflict between NATO and Russia, which means nuclear holocaust. We want to give some context to the absurdity of this situation by examining President Biden's fiscal year 2023 budget, which, by the way, is probably not that likely to pass in its current form. But we want to look at it just to get a sense of how little a commitment the administration is making to things that would actually help people in comparison to the tens of billions of dollars that are being sent without question or discussion to further a war whose consequences only grow more disastrous by the day. Just about everyone living in a city these days knows this country is struggling with homelessness. In the fiscal year 2023 budget, the Biden administration is proposing $3.6 billion for homeless assistance grants, $54 billion for Ukraine, $3.6 billion for the homeless. You heard that right. According to the administration, that $3.6 billion will help 25,000 people, which means that had they spent the $54 billion on homeless assistance grants, they could have helped 375,000 people. Part of the reason we have a homelessness crisis is the fact that we also have an affordable housing crisis. Well, the main way the government promotes affordable housing, housing choice vouchers, are slated in Biden's budget to get $32.1 billion. Now, again, that's less than has been sent to Ukraine in just a few months. Now, in all fairness, Biden is also offering $35 billion in a separate program and grants to state and local housing agencies to try to develop low-income housing. But just think about that. 
In just a few months, the Biden administration has committed 80% of what it proposes to spend on affordable housing in one year. And on top of that, Biden has totally dropped his proposal from last year to clear the $70 billion backlog in public housing repairs that has turned quite a bit of the nation's public housing stock into slums. But again, in just a few months, Congress easily passed 77% of that amount and sent it to Ukraine. Among the many things being revealed by the COVID-19 pandemic is that our public health systems are vastly inadequate. The public health workforce shrank by nearly 60,000 people in the decade prior to the pandemic, and all sorts of critical public health programs have suffered major cuts. For instance, the Hospital Preparedness Program, the main source of federal funding to help healthcare systems prepare for emergencies, has experienced a nearly 50% funding cut, nearly two-thirds when adjusted for inflation, over the last two decades. The Biden administration is proposing $9.9 billion in public health funding in the fiscal year 2023 budget. A recent report stated that the bare minimum the U.S. must spend on public health is $4.5 billion a year. So, hey, that Biden number looks pretty good, right? Well, look at it like this. In just a few months, the Biden administration has sent $9 billion more to Ukraine than the cost of the bare minimum public health investment for the next decade. So just to reiterate, over a decade's worth of the necessary public health funding in just a few months, when the actual public health funding is being left to the whims of the budget cutters in Congress. The administration is also touting in the budget $11.3 billion in funding for quote-unquote clean energy investments as part of the broader funding for the Department of Energy. Now, given the depth of the climate crisis, that sort of speaks for itself. $54 billion in a few months for Ukraine, $11.3 billion for investments to save the planet. The budget is also touting a, quote, historic investment in high-poverty schools. How much is that? It's $36.5 billion. And notably, it's only $20.5 billion in discretionary funds, so they were legally required to spend the rest. So, yep, you got it. The quote-unquote historic level of funding for high-poverty schools for an entire year is $17.5 billion less than what the U.S. has sent to Ukraine in just a few months. I could go on and on, but you get the point here. When it comes to the priorities of the U.S. government, they got money for war, but not for the poor and working class that's trying as hard as they can just to survive. Australia's federal election over the weekend has shaken the political landscape of the Pacific Island nation as the outgoing Prime Minister Scott Morrison's Liberal National Coalition government went down in a major defeat as Morrison's Liberal Party in particular took a shellacking. The election had two clear themes, climate change and living standards. Australian voters made it very clear they want a government that's going to do more on climate and address the fall in living standards that took place under the hyper-neoliberal, climate-denial-adjacent Liberal National Coalition. The Labour Party, sort of an Australian version of the Democratic Party in the U.S., emerged victorious, but likely will only be able to form a minority government in Parliament. The Green Party had its best ever showing, stealing a march on Labour, it seems, with a more aggressively left-leaning program. The biggest shocker and the one that all Australian media is talking about is the so-called teal wave of independents who banded together specifically around the issue of climate. And this teal wave mainly hurt the liberals because it was right in their core base, which is the upper middle class that lives in the inner suburbs of the major cities. In the state of Victoria, Victoria Socialist, a DSA-like group, also had a good showing, getting over 6% of the first preference votes, which is well above what anyone openly calling themselves socialists has gotten in Australia in quite a while. On the flip side, the far right, represented by the One Nation Party and the United Australia Party, who have a Trump-esque sort of politics, heavily linked to support for the mining industry, 
also improved their vote. Overall, the two major parties, Liberal National and Labor, got 68% of the vote. Their combined vote share hasn't dropped below 80% since World War II. So overall, you can see the political landscape is shifting sharply in Australia and also polarizing more intensely. The Labour Party is led by Anthony Albanese, who is in the driver's seat here, but since they can only form a minority government, a lot is up in the air, as they'll need to make alliances to pass anything, which could be difficult. Labour is already under pressure to address the budget deficit and make cuts to public spending, and has only made tepid promises around living standards, saying they will keep the minimum wage on pace with inflation, but no more. They also don't have much of a plan on affordable housing, another major demand of working-class people, and they are not backing major increases in programs like JobSeeker, that's something like unemployment insurance, which is well below any sort of living wage. Now, that puts Labour at odds for certain with the Greens, who one would think would be a natural party for them in trying to govern from a minority perspective. The Greens have called for one million low-cost homes and a rise in all social support payments, for instance. That means Labour may be left relying on deals with the Liberal National Party and perhaps some of the Teal Independents to keep the neoliberal train going. However, the other side of that is that the independents and certainly the Greens are going to press hard around climate issues. Labor says they're committed to a 43% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2030. The independents want at least 63% and the Greens 100%. So all in all, while there were big electoral changes in terms of the results, it seems the Australian political system may struggle to deliver vastly different policies than the unpopular Morrison government principally because of the deep contradictions plaguing capitalism around the world, as the divergence between profits and the needs of people only grows amidst the climate crisis and the race to the bottom on wages and worker protections, and the capitalist political parties struggle to straddle the line. Further, there is a deep contradiction at the heart of all Australian policy, and that is the full-throated support for the new Cold War on China that Morrison has been pursuing. Labor is committed basically to the same policy as Morrison, but has made some noises that they may try to take down the temperature a bit. The big issue is China is Australia's largest trading partner, and the foodstuffs and minerals they mainly export don't have any comparable market. Further, China is the leading large nation in the climate change fight. So it seems essentially impossible to improve the economic situation for working people and address climate change, which voters want, without deeper cooperation with China. But that's the opposite direction from where the major political parties in the Australian media are pushing. They're pushing towards confrontation. So where China policy goes will certainly play a major role in whether or not the will of voters in Australia for a better, more sustainable life can come to pass. So hard choices ahead in Australia, whether or not there'll be a break with neoliberal policies and an offensive to combat climate change will undoubtedly play a big role in the stability of the political system moving forward. President Joe Biden has continued his bellicose actions towards China, once again stating the U.S. would defend Taiwan militarily in any conflict with China. This remark made at a press conference in Japan was the third time Biden had affirmed that this was the case, despite the U.S. having no treaty obligations to do so and, not for nothing, an obligation that more or less sets the United States up for potential nuclear conflict with China. So this is in no way minor. It's also a revision of the one-China policy that the U.S. claims to adhere to, which recognizes the sovereignty of the People's Republic of China over Taiwan. The statements by Biden, all three have been walked back by the White House, but each time he just keeps repeating it. So essentially, Biden is committing the U.S. to defend Taiwan with nuclear weapons and changing the longstanding China policy of the United States without any discussion or debate. The issue is very fraught given the sensitivity of this issue among Chinese people. The relevant context is this. Taiwan is a part of China. 
It has been for hundreds of years. It exists as a separate entity because of the Chinese Revolution of 1949. The broad masses of the country supported the Chinese Communist Party that swept into power in 1949 as the previous government of Chiang Kai-shek had lost the vast majority of its support because of the disastrous stewardship of the country, which failed to address the vast poverty of the nation as well as its total prostration before foreign nations. In the U.S. context, it's a bit hard for people to understand because there isn't an exact comparison we could make. But think about it like this. Imagine if at the end of the Civil War, slave owners had retreated to some large island just off the coast, like, say, Long Island, seized it by force, turned it into a fortress, then used their fortress as a base to promote pro-slavery propaganda with the support of all the most powerful countries on Earth. In this regard, it's worth noting, by the way, that Chiang Kai-shek once tried to bar black U.S. troops from China during World War II to curry favor with segregationists. So, of course, while all this aside, this particular example may seem overdrawn to many people in the West who only hear the pro-Taiwan side of things, to people on the Chinese mainland, that's how it feels. That the remnants of a deeply unjust system are ensconced in Taiwan and being used as a lever against the new system, which righted many of the previous wrongs by powerful nations that fear China's exercise of self-determination. While Taiwan seems like a small issue in the U.S. to a degree, in China, it's huge. It speaks to the entire social, political, and cultural heritage of the nation. And supporting an independent Taiwan or openly agreeing to defend them in a war is a massively reckless policy with huge implications for the globe. So this is why no U.S. government since Nixon has seriously entertained either of these things and limits itself to weapon sales that they know will upset China, but that don't really change the strategic balance of forces. So Biden's comments are crucial here. It represents a truly reckless escalation of tensions between China and the United States at the exact moment in the context of climate change and other global challenges that the two nations need to work closer together. This isn't just an errant comment that can be dismissed. Biden keeps saying he doesn't want a new Cold War with China, but he's aggressively pressing on literally the most hot-button issue for China and also other major hot-button issues as well. It seems like he's determined to drive up tension between the two countries, but just keeps repeating that he isn't trying to drive up tensions. It's reckless, it's dangerous, it's bad for the world, but Biden just seems set to warmonger on China no matter the consequences. That's the punch-out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom.